Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. I just wanted to remind everybody I will be at Retro Games Plus in Orange, Connecticut starting at 6pm for their Congo Swap Meet. And if you're watching this the day it's released publicly, it's tonight, Friday the 3rd. So if you're in the area, if you're around Orange, Connecticut, I'll definitely be there right by 6 and I'll try to hang out till the end. I'm not sure if I'll make it all the way to 10pm, but I probably will. So uh, if you're around, come by, say hi, bring some stuff to sell, trade or buy or whatever else. Uh, I've been to a few of these in the past and they were always fun and very welcoming. So feel free to just show up and say hi. I'm definitely going to have a truckload of random stuff and I still got like some extra speakers, some subwoofers and some of the bigger items that I normally wouldn't want to ship or or really transport. I also have that Outrun arcade machine. If anybody's in the area, I can throw that in the truck and bring it down as well. So just let me know and hopefully I get to see a whole bunch of you there. Vert Penguin wanted to rebuild their arcade bar top that was previously based on a Windows PC that stopped working, and they wanted to use a mister instead. But they were wondering if they should use the arcade bar top they already had and just gut it, or they should buy a kit from, like a do-it-yourself kit and build it from scratch, or repurpose something like an arcade one-up cabinet. And all of those are preference, as long as it's mister based and it has the buttons and stick that you like and a very low latency screen then you're winning. So for me personally, my opinions on this would be that I would always start with price. What's the cheapest way to accomplish the goal that I'm looking for? So in the same situation, if I were in your shoes, I would want Mr. And then I would also want to make sure I had the lowest latency screen possible or a really, really nice screen. Um, you know, there's always a trade-off. I would deal with a frame of lag if it was an OLED with BFI. But if you're talking about just repurposing a PC screen or a tablet screen, make sure to get one super low latency. And I would just want to make sure that the buttons of choice and all of the features that I wanted are in there. So six buttons, a coin button, a start button, you know, stuff that I don't have to have a USB keyboard plugged in unless I really need to. Those are all the things that I would want integrated into that. So what's the cheapest way to go about doing it? Or on the flip side, if you recently came into some cash and you just wanted to build something that that is you know reasonably priced, but price isn't an issue, you're not going for the cheapest, then what's the best overall fit? So I wouldn't ever advise just going out and buying an arcade one-up cabinet in order to gut it and repurpose it. But what if you happen to stumble across one locally for like a hundred bucks? That might be a really cheap way to go about doing it. And if you check out the Arcade 1UP community, you could figure out which models have a 4x3 screen, which ones have a little less latency. So you could very easily end up converting one of those if you found it cheap. But you also have the one your existing one, so will it fit the buttons that you want? Will it fit the screen that you want? And as far as buying a kit from somebody else, um, that is when you could start customizing and really get cool and, and have custom artwork done. So it's really up to you to decide what is the most important thing and what your budget is. But for me personally, uh, function over uh, over any kind of aesthetics is always 
the first priority for me, but I do really appreciate when things are nice looking. I just, if I had a choice between an arcade cabinet that played perfectly or a beautiful looking one that played like crap, I would always take the ugly one that plays nice. So um, I guess I would just look into options around your area and see what's best for you. Fabian Schneider said they've run into some problems desoldering bad components where solder seems to be really resistant to heat and won't liquefy. Very high temperatures north of 350C are required, and even then it's more of a deformable solid. It's very hard to open up vias when that happens, and the risk of damaging the PCB goes up. The goopy solder is hard to pick up with a soldering tip, wick, and a solder sucker. Do I have any tips, and is there a Googleable name for this problem? Some context, most recently they were removing worn out shoulder buttons from a GBA SP and they used a 100 watt temperature controlled iron and a 24 volt 90 watt solder sucker. Both there were bought brand new, so they can't imagine they're both complete garbage. Um, they also practiced their task on a junk PCB beforehand every time they sit down. Desoldering worked fine on their nine-year-old junk PCBs. They used 99.9% IPA for cleaning and either a rosin flux paste or no clean pen, depending on the task. So I am not an expert in soldering, but I have friends that are, and I could just barely keep up with a lot of the stuff that they do. So I can give you advice from somebody who's not great, but is able to get it done. So there might be better advice out there. There might be better methods, but it sounds like you're in a similar place to where I was a few years ago. And the number one thing that made the biggest difference was the equipment that I used. And funny you mentioned they're brand new, so they should be good. I bought a brand new, at the time it was like $90 for a soldering station. Came with a couple of tips, I bought a couple of extra tips, and then I had spent 100 bucks on a desoldering gun that was gun only. It wasn't the, the station with a gun attached to it. And that choice was just because I wanted it smaller at the time. And I ruined... <laughs> three, at least three different motherboards with that desoldering iron because I just, it wouldn't get hot enough. It wouldn't work right. And the soldering iron itself wasn't terrible, but then Voltar introduced me to that soldering, the Kesker soldering iron that I've been using ever since, which was cheaper than the one that I bought. And then I bought the soldering station, the, um, I'll leave a link. It's the, uh, ZD915. Sorry, I had it sitting right over there. It's not all directly in front of me anymore. And that was $110 at the time. So it was only 10 bucks more. So basically, if I had chosen both of those first, I would have spent about the same money, a little less actually, and everything changed. I was immediately able to drag solder where I wasn't before. Desoldering, the first time I desoldered with the ZD915, I just started laughing because it was exactly like in Voltar's videos and it was exactly like when Jose did it in front of me, just and the chip fell out. So, you know, it's it, the quality of the stuff that you buy is so important for stuff like this and price doesn't necessarily determine quality. So that's definitely the number one tip I would give you. And I'll leave a link to my page and hopefully the part shortage didn't ruin any of those links. Hopefully they're still available. The only other tip I can give is when desoldering anything, add new solder first. And it seems counterintuitive. Why would you add more of something that you're about to take away? But in times where there's going to be um, a lot of like ground plane that you have to solder to mixed with old crusty solder, it does kind of freshen it up and make it easier to desolder afterwards. That was an old Voltar tip that I've been using ever since I heard it, and it definitely makes a difference. 
And I've also replaced the shoulder buttons on a GBA SP, and I also thought it was a giant pain, but that was back when I didn't have the better equipment. So I would just recommend, I mean, maybe your equipment is already great, but I would double check that first. Make sure it's stuff that other people in the community have confirmed that is working well for them, especially people that have used more than one iron just so they could compare it to something else. And then just try adding more solder before desoldering and see if that works. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Jason Guffey saw my video on the 4K Gamer Pro, and now they want to add another scaler to their mix. However, since that only accepts 1080p, do I think using another scaler beforehand to get 240p or 480p content to 1080p would look alright with 3D content, PS1 and newer, for example? So, no, I showed this a little bit in the video. Um, for 2D graphics, yes, I, I thought it was spectacular, and... I know a lot of people don't like that effect, but it is my strong opinion that on my TV sets that I tested it with, seeing the sharpness that was gained from it was much more important to me than some of the effects that sometimes looked cool and sometimes didn't. That is preference-based. If you hate those effects or if everything's sharp enough for you now, then that's not really something that would be a benefit to you. But for 2D graphics, yes. For 3D graphics, no, because I think it's something that um, that you should be doing the opposite with, especially early 3D graphics that are very blocky and and kind of clunky. I think smoothing those out would be the right way to do it. And I've never gotten the M cable to work right with those. People swear that it works and swear that I have some kind of agenda or something, which is weird because I always praise it with 720p and some 1080p stuff. But I just think that that's the type of thing where some kind of smoothing, like if if the next generation of scalers can integrate anti-aliasing into their scaling algorithms, so going from 240p to 4k, smooth it that way, I think that would be pretty cool. But no, I don't think it would look great with 3D content. Now, that is just preference. If you like a super blocky 3D graphics look, then that's totally up to you. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's the one thing, the one point I always try to make about the M Cable, M Classic, same thing, um, or the, uh, the 4K Gamer Pro is that they don't hurt the signal. They don't add lag. They don't compress colors. There's it doesn't do anything that would take away from gaming. It just is a matter of preference. So if your eyes like it, cool. If your eyes don't like it, also cool. It's just one of those lucky scenarios in which, you know, it's just something you need to decide on. Second, uh, as far as scaling, they know the RAD 2X is made for specific systems, but given that the, N the Nintendo variant can handle signals from every multi-out system, would it be possible to wire it up with some RCA jacks as a system agnostic 480p scaler? Yes, absolutely, but do that at your own risk. You have to then power it. You have to snap the tab off and then power it via USB, and anything else that goes wrong is now up to you. And, and said a little bit meaner just because I don't want to put uh, a support issue on Rob for anybody else that's listening. Once you do something like that, 
Anything that goes wrong is your fault, not the fault of the Rad 2X. That said, you personally, Jason, you, you know what you're doing. You can handle that. And I said, I made that comment and I made it harshly just for anybody who's half listening while jogging or something like that. I just wanted to get the point across that the moment you take a device that's designed for one purpose and make it do other things, which I do all the time, it's not supported. So if you cut the wires off and try to wire it into an NES's AV port, then you know don't call Rob for support. So great idea, and it totally would work. I just wanted to make sure that, and I'm sure it'll void your warranty too. So I, I just wanted to make sure that I was clear about that just to set everybody's expectations properly. A couple more from Jason, because I guess their question got deleted by, by Patreon last week. I'm really sorry. I got to just keep saying I am not the one that's deleting these questions. I guess at this point, it would be a funny prank, but that's not the kind of prank that I like to play. So sorry that those keep getting deleted. But a uh, couple more questions. Where do I recommend that you could get TSOP chips for Voltar's non-destructive cart converters? I'm not really sure, and I've had a few other people ask me about that because the ones that they were buying are no longer in stock. So that's something you're going to have to hunt down. You might want to look up the part numbers and then see if there's any confirmed alternative part numbers in case they're out of stock. Um, but I don't have any good advice on that one. If anybody else does, please feel free to um, maybe maybe respond twice. Respond once with just the model number and then respond again with a link because some links get held for review where I get to approve them and some just disappear in the YouTube void forever. Uh, lastly, do I have suggestions for a 1440p to 1080p downscaler? For devices like capture cards and something like the 4K Gamer Pro, which would only accept 1080p, they'd like to be able to play on a 1440p monitor with stuff like the RetroTINK 5X or M Classic, but also send and distribute 1080p signals for various other chains. I don't necessarily know of one. I think some Extron devices might, but once you get past 1080p, now you're getting closer to 4K territory, and that stuff could get incredibly pricey, to the point where I would just recommend getting a Avermedia, either the Bolt or the internal version, which is what I'm using right now to record this, um, and it will handle 1440, and it should do a decent enough job at that. Um, and I know that's probably not the answer you wanted, but I, I always like to put cost first, because even if I did know of a device, which I don't off the top of my head, if that device was 500 bucks and a new capture card was 200, I would much rather see you save that money and spend it elsewhere. Go find a, a cool thing in retro gaming and, you know, pay some indie developer for their awesomeness. But uh, yeah, so I, I just, you could look around for other devices, but I would actually approach that differently just to save money. Quantum Guitar knows that my answer to this question is probably going to be do whatever looks best to your eyes, but they wanted my opinion anyway. It's come to their attention that most Japanese-produced content pre-2011 may likely have been mastered on monitors with a different white point setting than the U.S., as well as the modern international standard. That seems to imply that most people are used to and have nostalgia for a slightly warmer image watching 9300K mastered content on 6500K monitors. They've heard some PVM monitors have a switch to move between these settings, but do I have any experience dealing with this with more modern equipment? They've been playing with using a slightly cooler color temperature in these situations with seemingly appropriate results. The result is always another layer of interest when it comes to being a nerd with this stuff. Um, so I would recommend that you just do what looks right to your eyes. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Um, that is actually my answer. However, I... I think if you do have access to a PVM, flip the switch and 
and really toggle back and forth. And also, just for fun, do that on your favorite games and see what that does to it. Because different people don't might not even realize that they're colorblind. So switching the color temperature of something might make something look horrible, or it might make something look better to you. Um, there's just a whole bunch of different scenarios where purists are going to say that you should always try to go for the original, which I make that attempt as well but it is preference-based. Now, if you're talking about playing this content on modern equipment, I don't know of any device that could do this digitally. Uh, maybe this is a setting in, in common things that I just don't even know about, but what you could do is download a free program like DaVinci Resolve and try upscaling this old content, and or at the very least, adding a, a, a lookup table so you could change the color of it. And if you know you want to talk about going down a rabbit hole, if you're talking about 480i content, you could first use one program to change the color temperature. Then you could use another program to do some AI-based deinterlacing, and then another program to AI-based scale that to 4K. So you could essentially try to have a 4K home remastered version in the correct color, in the correct color space and white balance. And you could really go crazy with this stuff. But at the very least, you could just take a DVD or a Blu-ray and then run it through. You know, you'd have to decrypt it, of course, which there's a million free programs, load it into DaVinci Resolve, and then try to change the color temperature that way. And then just export it exactly in the same, uh, you know, the same way it was imported. So you're not changing anything other than the color. I think that would be a very cool way to go about doing it. So if that's something that you're willing to try, please let us know how it goes, because I'm pretty curious in the results, and it might be something I'd like to mess with. I would definitely like to mess with that deinterlacing and AI-based scaling stuff. And the there's some very expensive programs that have free trials, and I just I haven't installed it yet because I am notorious for going, okay, there's a 14-day trial. I'm going to install it right now. I'm going to do a whole bunch of work and see if it's something I want to pay for. And then I get distracted and I blink an eye and the trial period's over. So uh, I'll get to that eventually, but I'm certainly curious if you go down that road, what your results are. James the Naked Snake said, have myself or anyone in the community gotten any decent recommendations for a good value disc repair machine? They don't mind going manual or electronic, just so as long as it works on both lightly and reasonably heavy scratched discs. They don't mind spending a two or $300 price on it, but cheaper is of course better. They've got a few dozen discs that needs cleaning up, plus any games they pick up in the future that are scratch, so they're looking for something long lasting with easy access to replacement accessories. I personally don't have a recommendation. I don't really do any of that. Um, anytime I have had issues, I've tried to buff it out with like a microfiber cloth and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I would be interested in other people's opinions. The only thing I do know is I've talked to a few people that have used those before that 10 years ago, they were totally fine using them and they don't anymore because of how many games may have been resurfaced, they call it, where basically they just cut a layer of plastic off the disc. Once you do that a couple of times, now it's a very thin and brittle CD that could crack and splinter and break. So I, I've known people that stopped doing that just in case they got one that was already resurfaced two or three times already, and it just would, would break the disc apart. So I'm very curious to see what the community has to say about that, and I would uh, I would really like to know any suggestions anybody else has. 
Marco Vizzini suggested I reach out to RGB Rob to do an interview or just, you know, laid back podcast style thing because they cover a lot of consumer grade CRTs. That is a great idea. I've known Rob for a while. Um, I don't talk to him all the time, but I've definitely tried to keep in touch. I have so many friends I've lost touch with just because I'm busy and I suck as being a friend. I try real hard, though, but yeah, it's a great idea. There's a long list of people I really want to catch up with, um, whether it's people I've already interviewed that I want to follow back up with or just people I haven't had a chance to talk to yet. And it's it's just really hard to get everything to fall into place. I'm trying to change the way I do things a little bit to free up some extra time, but it, it's hard. So um, I'll do my best. Uh, you know, I'll try to reach out to Rob after this. Rob, if you're listening, reach out to me, definitely. And you know, don't let me forget. Uh, I feel like that'd be a fun chat. So thanks for the suggestion. And I'll, I'll try and get to everybody, really. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Pask was wondering what my opinion is on the current state of game collecting. We're all here because we're super into getting the most out of our consoles, and they started collecting properly in around 2008 at the age of 14. Back then, they could walk into most charity shops or car boots in the UK, find games for super cheap, and then enjoy playing and collecting. Now they've found their love of collecting in the past five years to be more of a financial burden. It's pushed them into going down the route of Everdrives, and that doesn't have the same feel as looking through a shelf, cracking open a box, and pushing the cartridge into a console, but it gets the job done. Do I think prices will fall, or do I think it's just what our future holds? Uh, Well, first, thanks for the kind words, and I do have some opinions on this. Um, First, I do think prices will fall. I think once once a lot of the scams are are weeded out, um, the prices on some of the very unobtainable stuff will fall. But I do think that as long as people have interest in something, the price will continue to grow up, grow up, will go up or just kind of get stagnant for a while. And of course, as people lose interest in stuff, the price will go back down. Like, you know, you could get Atari 2600 games way cheaper now than you could in other periods of time, even back when it was, um, you know, back when it was like right after it was mainstream. So it's just, it's one of those things where it's going to level out a little bit, but I do think that it's it's easier to get around this stuff now because you get to decide what's important to you. And once again, this is all just my own personal opinion, and my opinions evolve as I learn more things. So a year from now, I might have a different opinion. But for me, I do love going to game stores and looking at the boxes and looking at the manuals and to kind of see if I I spot something that I would be interested in and then, you know, ask around, talk to the people who work there. And if it's a reasonable price, yeah, I definitely would pay for it. Or on the flip side, if somebody recommends a cool game, I will totally fire up Mr. or my EverDrive and start playing it. 
But if I love it, I'll always try to find the original and I'll always start with local game stores because I always try to support local. And then you kind of just got to decide from there. Like I'd never played Neo Turf Masters before, or if I had, I didn't quite remember. I just kind of was going through an arcade and just played one or two things. And I really liked it. I thought that was a very fun golf game. And then when I saw it was $15,000 for the AES version, I was like, okay, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> then you know what? It's wrong. You could you could shame me for that. You could call me a thief knowing that I'm, I'm using something that I'll never buy. But that's fine. I'm not stealing money from the developers. And I've never seen it in a game store ever. So it's just one of those things where you kind of have to decide. But then you get a game like Super Metroid, which I do own. But if I didn't, I love that game. And if that game is going to be $60, $70, $80, I'd still play it, or I'd still buy it. And even if I didn't play off the cartridge all the time, especially with like the Sam Miller audio packs you can get, I just, it's important to me that I would own it. And I'm always looking for like really good quality, complete and box versions of games that I like. And if, if the price is super high, I won't buy it, but it really comes down to what's the most important thing to you. At the end of the day, the game is the most important thing when you're talking about gaming, but the total experience is exactly what you described, you know, opening the manual, plugging the cartridge in. So I try to find the best of both worlds and do what's important to me. Um, and I also appreciate a lot of the cheaper stuff that I find because while I don't quite have the room here to expand like a big wall of games, I love going over friends' houses who have that and it's just neat to see and it's colorful and it's, you know, it's a decoration as well as something that you could play. So I'm a fan of all of it, but to answer your question directly, some prices will fall, but for the most part, I think we're going to be leveling it out for a little while. So I would definitely just pick and choose what you want to buy or pick up anything that just happens to be a good deal that you may or may not be interested in right away. You know, you spend two bucks on a game in a game store, you bring it home and it turns out to be meh, not really that big a deal. It's not like you spent 50 or something like that. And you have a cool thing to put on your shelf. Daniel Adato said, not really a retro-related question, but they're looking into starting a WordPress blog, and there's a million options with everyone trying to sell you on their service. Do I have any advice as far as hosting? They hear good things about Bluehost, but don't trust that people are just trying to push an affiliate link. They just want a place to post some movie reviews. So I do have a very, very strong opinion that I think you should root whatever you decide on in, in that... Make sure that you're doing this to write stuff in a blog and you don't end up having to become a webmaster. And that's something where I've been building websites since the 90s. So when I started RetroRGB, it was kind of a no-brainer. And then when I switched over to WordPress and AWS, it was a nightmare because, yes, it's a website, but it's completely different than any of the other things I'd done. So even though I had, you know, 30 years of experience, 20 years of experience, whatever, it's still one of those things that I was new. I was a baby doing WordPress for the first time. And I ended up spending a lot of time in the back end. And that's why, luckily, Justin stepped up and did most of the work. So thank you again, Justin. Much appreciated. But uh, so I would just make sure to pick something where... Maybe it doesn't even necessarily have to be WordPress unless you know for a fact that you want those plugins. I would just pick whatever's cheap and accomplishes what you want with the least amount of worries. So I would just kind of go through and say like, oh, I want to make sure to have a plugin so I could automatically upload to Anchor Podcasts or something. Look into what does that. Look into something that has the features that you want and... If, if it's just a written blog, meaning that you're not doing custom coding or, or anything else, 
any one of these sites that allows you to import and export your, your blog entries should be good enough. Um, doing it from scratch, unless you're, you know, unless you're a dev, I, I don't think that that's a good idea. So I would not go to AWS. Basically, I would not do any of the things I did again if it were for just like a smaller page. Like if the band I was in ever got back together and wanted to do a tour, I would have it on like Squarespace or something just so that I could spend my time doing band stuff and not website stuff. Hopefully that stupid analogy kind of put things into perspective. So while I don't have an, a direct recommendation of something that you should go to right now, and I would actually love anybody else's opinion on that because I've been meaning to do like a very quick side website just for stuff I want to dump on there. Um, I just would say try to make sure that your time is concentrated on your content and not administration of whatever you're building that content on. Hopefully that came out right. Let me know if you have any other questions and especially let me know if you find a, a web builder site that you think is worth it and good. Logan wants to know my thoughts on using the Steam Deck as an emulator. Lots of people are showing how to emulate games, but not assessing things like lag. And that's a great question. And I think the reason why people are mostly concentrating on how and not not the performance is because you would have to dig in to each emulator and each platform that you're emulating in order to get true analysis, which is why I would never say one platform is good or bad for emulation. Um, I try to use a little bit more general terms, and I think the best example I could personally give is I've been using Raspberry Pis to emulate arcade boards since that started, and sometimes I get a perfectly good experience. Other times it was too slow, so I got some frame drops and some graphical glitches, but it was so much easier to, to play a game that way than it was to hunt down original hardware, restore it, repair it. And all I wanted to do was just see what the game was like, that I think it is more than fair trade-off. So I think that's what you have to do when you assess things like the Steam Deck. And that, first of all, okay, it's a portable gaming console that you could take with you. So you might have some trade-offs that you, uh, because you're able to take something with you, you'd be less... Um, you know, maybe you don't care as much about audio because the speakers in there aren't as good as your home bookshelf speakers, but you get to take it with you. And it's the same with emulation. So load up the emulators, run some tests and kind of figure out what works well for you. Now, I do really hope that some reviewers will go into that eventually. And it's rough because there's a lot of different combinations of emulators that you could use. But if people really start to dig in and determine, I, I think as long as the Steam Deck user base is big enough, it could totally be plausible that there's a database somewhere, maybe even the wiki, where you go through and you could say, this emulator on this version of the Steam Deck, um, you know, plays these games perfect, here's our lag measurements, etc. So I know my answer wasn't directly what you were looking for. It's just that I can't really say, I think it's great. I think it sucks. I think it's going to deter, or it's going to be different based on what exactly it is you're trying to emulate. But generally speaking, I've heard people think it's doing a pretty good job at that. Um, so for what that's worth, I guess that means it's at the very least, it's worth looking into a little bit more. I would just go console sp or platform specific when you're looking for that information. Charles Madeira was interested in SNES digital audio mods, but they were unsure if their current setup can handle the signal that the SNES would output if you install the mod, and they were wondering if you resample the audio to make sure that it's compatible, what would the latency be like? And 
all of those are good questions, but I, I definitely want to start at the beginning and ask the question of why do you want a digital audio mod? For me personally, when I first started the website and first discovered these, it was because fully shielded cables were incredibly hard to come by. And then even once they were manufactured and I was able to use those, when I plugged into my home theater system, a optical audio mod from an SNES, there was zero noise floor. Whereas even with the fully shielded cables, you're always going to have some kind of analog hum. And I was kind of intrigued by that. But the more I've learned over the years, the more I realized that a lot of these analog signals add some kind of filtering to it, low pass, high pass filtering, which is how the original developers were designing their sound, whether it was sound effects or soundtracks to sound like. And it was really MD Fourier that drove that point home to me that I didn't fully understand until I was able to see those awesome charts that MD Fourier was, is able to generate. And on top of that, so even if uh, SNES filtering isn't quite, uh, isn't that big of a deal, so it sounds perfect or near perfect even with it, there's a few downsides. You can't use MSU1 audio through the optical mod and you can't use Super Game Boy. If you're not using either of those, it's not a big deal then, of course. And also, it's going to be hard, if not impossible, to do any kind of MD Fourier analysis on Super Nintendo because each console outputs slightly different. And I'm not just talking about motherboard revisions or sound chip revisions. You could take five, you know, one chip O3s that are all within a few serial numbers of each other and do an analysis and they might all be slightly different. And that could be related to a whole bunch of different things, whether it's just uh, tolerance of components or a lot of other stuff. But it's going to be hard to really analyze this and find out how much different these things are. And it's been a while since I spoke to the MD Fourier team about Super Nintendo. So I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm not trying to say don't do it because I, I absolutely love the mod and, and think it's pretty awesome. I just wanted to put it out there that you might be going down a path where you say, oh, all I play is Super Game Boy and MSU Audio. So no, I don't want to bother with that. But if you do decide that you want to use it, um, I, you know, resampling the audio can have some negative effects. Depending how it's done, it might not be noticeable by the human ear. You might get a little bit of latency and that uh, effects come at a different time or something like that, but it's it's not huge. I don't think it's seconds difference. So I guess first I would just start with the whole, are you sure you want to do this? And if you do, maybe just try one of the basic audio mods first and see if that works on your setup and not worry about resampling. I know I'm the end result of that is you potentially wasting money, which sucks, um, but it's just not anything I know how to test. I really wish we could have some kind of test kit where like we create a Mr. Core that's just like a, a test suite Mr. Core that we could send SNES digital audio out of the digital audio IO board and, and test that stuff. But it, it's pretty more, it's a lot more complicated than that. So for compatibility, if you could borrow one from a friend or, or hopefully if somebody lives locally, they could drive one over, that would be the best thing by far to see if your setup is compatible. And I've had stuff where like I had a receiver work with the Super Nintendo mod, but not with the Saturn digital audio mod. And then I've had stuff work with none. I've had stuff work with everything. So it is kind of rough to figure that out. But I would kind of go down that road first and then decide where you're at. Or if you've already decided, um, follow up next week and we could kind of talk through it even more.
Monty said, just a quick heads up for anyone interested in an integrated keyboard and Mr. Case. They were watching Lou's video in which he showed a Commodore 64 shaped ITX case with full mechanical keys and caps. The seller will be running a Kickstarter for new versions of the integrated case. And Monty just wanted to let everybody know. Monty's not affiliated in any way. They just thought the community might be interested. So you would just need to pair it with a Mr. ITX add-on board. So you could have the Ironclad, the Jamix, and I think there's others going to be available at some point soon. And then from there on, you just basically treat it like a PC. You install it in that case, you plug it in, and it looks really cool. It looks just like a Commodore 64 or any of those older style computers. So I think that's incredibly neat if you have like a sit-down desktop gaming station that you want to recreate that old PC experience. So I also am not affiliated with them and don't know anything about them, so I'm just going to leave the link in the description. Please use it at your own risk. No offense to Monty or myself. Maybe they're awesome. I don't know them at all, so I just want to leave that link out there with that little caveat. But it sure as hell looks cool, I'll say that. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As and want to ask a question, ask anything you want, wherever it is that you support. Today, all of the questions were only on Patreon, but it's not limited to that. Wherever Kofi, Floatplane, the YouTube subscribe support service, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call that one, any service that you support on, ask whatever question you want in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really do love just scrolling through in real time and just doing this off the cuff like I always do. So any question you want, ask wherever it is that you support. And if I don't get to the question or if I skip over it, it is never intentional. Patreon still has that bug where questions just disappear for no reason. Um, And, you know, I'm only human, so sometimes I make mistakes and accidentally delete stuff in post. So it's never intentional, though. So if I miss your question, just re-ask it or DM me if you need anything. But anyway, thanks to everybody who participates in these, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all this stuff alive. So thank you very much, and I'll see you next week.